Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. For generations, Monopoly has been America's favorite board game, a love letter to unbridled capitalism for better or worse, the impulses that make our free market society tick. But behind the myth of the game's creation is an untold tale of theft, obsession, and corporate double dealing, part detective story, part sharp social commentary, and part pop culture celebration. Ruthless Monopoly's Secret History presents a fascinating true story behind America's favorite game. The film is written and directed by our guest today, and that would be Stephen Ives. Stephen, welcome to Film School Radio. Thanks, Mike. Good to be with you. Thank you so very much. As I said to you as we were getting started, I love documentary films, period. End of, you know, full stop on that. But I love documentaries that take me to a place about a, a something I think I know something about or is very familiar to me. And yet I end up in a very different place at the end of watching Ruthless Monopoly Secret History. How did you come upon this story? I just came across a book, I mean, 18 years ago uh, called the, the Billion Dollar Monopoly Swindle, written by this guy named Ralph Ansbach. And I thought, what is that all about? And it was a self-published published memoir of this guy's um, journey. And I thought, wow, that's a take on America's favorite board game I haven't heard before. And the more I looked into it, the more I thought, this story really is a fascinating lens to look at American culture, American life, American ideas about capitalism and nostalgia and what we think of as what makes us Americans. And um, and so I followed my nose. I couldn't get it off the ground then. 18 years later, I still managed to have the interview that I did with Ralph uh, in my possession. And the folks at the American Experience and WGBH gave me the chance to make the film. And I got it done, sadly, about nine months after he passed away oh. at the age of 96. So unfortunately, he didn't see it, but um, I'm, I'm sure he's watching somewhere. Well, that's a terrific way to kick off. Who sure. is Ralph Onspach? And why is he so important to the telling of the story behind Monopoly? Well, he's almost like a classic uh, rumpled uh, economics professor. He even had the corduroy blazer, you know, and the patches on the on the elbows. Uh, he was he taught economics at San Francisco State University in the Bay Area in the 70s. And he's driving home one day during the gas crisis with the OPEC oil monopolies just screwing over Americans right and left. And he gets really pissed off. And so he goes in and he decides, I'm going to make a board game called anti-monopoly. And the point is going to be how to break up trusts, break up monopolies, because they're a, a sort of cancer on the American capitalist system. And he does, and it starts to sell pretty well. Patty Hearst plays it out in the Bay Area. It's, it sort of takes off. And uh, then he gets this classic scary letter from the General Mills company, which had bought the board game company Parker Brothers. And they say, you must cease and desist. You're infringing on our trademark. You got to throw away all your games. And if it was you or me, like we would just bow down and say whatever. And and Ralph is this 
Jewish German emigre who fled the Nazis as a kid, and he doesn't like bullies, and he says basically, "Screw you," and he and he sues them first, and uh, that starts a ten-year legal battle that takes him all the way to the steps of the United States Supreme Court. He is a great character too. On top of everything else, he, as per your description, he <clears throat> looks the part, he sounds the part, and he is a wonderful point of reference as the story unfolds. And there is so much about the truth of what he's what he was trying to get across in the anti-monopoly game, going back to the origin stories, and we'll get into this a little bit. One of the things I want to stay away from in our conversation is giving too much away because there's so much in this. Yeah, I appreciate that. Terms. But the fact that this board game at its origins originated at a time when we still think of that as the most dominant period of monopolies in American history, which was around the turn of the of the 20th century. Yes. So I'm going to ask for your guidance in our conversation here. Uh, at what point do we want to talk about Lizzie or who do we want to talk about? Because Ralph set this thing in motion in terms of pulling back the covers on the story behind Monopoly and, and its origin. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, Lizzie McGee is a great place to start. I love um, her. I don't, I don't know her. I didn't know anything about her before this before this documentary. But Lizzie is amazing. Please, I'm sorry to meet her. Yeah, she's she's. I mean, Ralph is is fighting this General Mills lawsuit, and one day one of his sons bursts into the kitchen and says, "Dad, Monopoly wasn't invented by the guy they say invented it. It was invented by a woman whose name is Lizzie McGee." And Ralph is like, Lizzie McGee, who, who is this person? And he digs back into her patent, which was in 1904. And she comes up with a thing called the landlord's game. Lizzie was a bit of a socialist, a bit of a radical. She was a kind of really out there woman who was pushing the boundaries of what it meant to be a woman in, in society. She's a feminist. She uh, invented a game that basically tried to show off the sins of accumulated capital. And, and it, when you look at it, you right away see the outlines of monopoly. There's four railroads. There's a, they didn't have cars back then, but they, per, per se in 1904. So, but there's, there's a free park on the corner. There's a jail, there's chance cards, there are all of these elements that are totally the foundation of monopoly. And she can't get it off the ground. She takes it to Parker brothers, who is the great game company at that point. They won't buy it. And it starts to spread uh, the way games in the old days used to spread. And it becomes what they call a folk game and starts to move around mostly the eastern, the East Coast in these radical circles with these intellectuals on college campuses and stuff. And that is the process that begins the game morphing and changing into the game that we know now as Monopoly. Well, she's just one of many very interesting characters, including Charles Darrow and others. I want to kind of explore the the radical, not, not only her radical feminism, by the way, some of the things that we see in the film that she was a part of, and she she sort of, uh, by her activism, brought, brought about, would be considered, I think, pretty radical today. Yes. And she does something that's really out there. She puts an ad in the paper and advertises herself as a young American woman slave. Yes. And it's a it's a prank. It's a it's a stunt. Uh, it's what one of the people in the films calls performance art, which is a right. great way to put it. And of course, 
she's not making any uh, uh, association with actual slavery, but she's trying to draw attention to the fact that women in her sphere, and of course we're talking mostly about white women in her case, are restricted and oppressed in what they can do in society. And it's a very effective way. It gets She gets covered in all the newspapers and it draws attention to what she sees as the plight of young working women in America in the 1920s. And people even submit offers to see if they can buy Lizzie McGee, which is, that's kind of uh, upsetting, a little uh, unnerving, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stunt. It typifies her kind of brash, out there kind of personality. Yeah. And there's one other thing that I want to explore. And the idea of land as a capital um a capital enterprise, the, the buying and selling of land. And this is something that I have heard over the years. I have some many friends uh, who are uh, Catholic workers and people like that who are very much invested in this idea of why is land something that we can buy and sell? But it, it, I don't know how far down this rabbit hole we want to go, I guess, kind of wondering. Yeah, it's a tricky thing because, you know, it, it doesn't give the story away, but yeah. it's it's deep background, but it's interesting. You know, Mark Twain once said, buy land, they're not making any more of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a guy in the turn of the century named Henry George, who was a very famous writer and public speaker. And his view was that monopolies on land was the root cause of inequality in America. And you should do away with all taxes except taxing land, which should be communal in his view. And Lizzie McGee became a huge follower of him, and he was very popular. His his theory was known as the single tax, and there were single taxers out there. And one of the purposes of the landlord's game that she created was to promote Henry George's ideas about what society should be like. But she printed it with two sets of rules. One was the rule set that we now think of as today as monopoly, and the other was a, a rule set that was much more communal and designed to promote uh, a kind of more socialistic society. And that uh, wasn't as popular because it was more complicated and took a lot more work and it, and you didn't get to crush your little brother or your little sister. And so it was the first set that took off and became the game now that we think of as Monopoly. I remind our listeners, we're speaking with the writer and director, Stephen Ives. He's responsible for a wonderful documentary film that you can currently log on to PBS to see. It's called Ruthless Monopoly Secret History. It is available on the at pbs.org as well as the PBS app. You can go there and check it out. And I strongly recommend it because, again, it's a really interesting, fascinating story. And there's so much in the telling of the story that is not only about monopoly, but also it's this is undercurrent of American history and politics and sort of the way we see wealth in this country and plus on top of it all it's a sort of meta story about the legal battle over who gets to control uh this all-american game of monopoly and we've all at some point i can't imagine that almost every american at some point hasn't played some version of monopoly over the years yeah, I mean, it's the rite of passage, right? Uh, uh, it's what you you wait for your kids to be old enough for like the early Beatles albums or to go to Disney World, and then you hand them Monopoly. And what you don't realize is that you're basically instructing them to sort of bow down in front of this altar to unbridled capitalism. Uh, 
and you're teaching them about money and real estate and about crushing your opponents and all of these values and messages that you're communicating. And you're also giving them a chance to have a really good time. And uh, it's, a, it's a game that has become part of who we are. And I think that that's interesting, but I think it's important to remember that the game is based on sort of a mythic view of America where everyone starts with $200 if you pass go. Everyone starts with the same amount of money. Anyone has access to the bank. Uh, and it's a free market and everyone can succeed. And we know that that's not the way America's real economic system works. It's class and race and inheritance and all these structural factors have a huge degree to say about who succeeds and who doesn't. It's a mythical idea of what the kind of American economic system is that we want to believe America is about. Uh, and that's just, I think, a little bit of a cautionary tale that I hope people take away from the film as well as the fun of, of the detective story. And to your point, we hear it echoed on a regular basis from certain voices in, in American politics or American culture. We hear that, that, that mythology. And while it's valuable to understand that, yes, America does present opportunities, and for people who do work hard and do make a, make a um, a fortune for themselves and their and and you get the generational wealth and there are those kind of things, but it's also yes, it's also much of it is a mythology as well. Yeah, and there's there, there's luck involved in yes. life and in board games. And yeah. what's interesting is that sociologists and have studied and and researchers have studied people playing Monopoly, and the people that win the game in a laboratory setting may be the winner because of a serious run of luck with the dice. But when they win, they don't believe that. They believe that they made their own luck, that mm -hmm. they earned it, that it wasn't about the dice. It was about how well they played the game. And I think that kind of amnesia, that kind of view of your own success is very much uh, around in certainly capitalist circles in America, you know, and and it's it's worth remembering that it's it's not always that way. Another thing about the film uh, Ruthless Monopoly's Secret History is the proliferation of other other games that had themes that were similar, and that is utterly fascinating. And, and I just there's so much here. I mean, yeah. I, I just there's just so there is there's a I feel like there's another documentary lurking within your documentary as well on just board games. Well, what happens so interestingly enough is that Parker Brothers has this big hit on their hands. They uh, have Monopoly and it's saving the company from bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah. But they realize that the inventor, Charles Darrow, who claimed he invented the game, actually stole the game and he's a fraud they have a real problem on their hands because now there are all these folk games that are out there and there are even games that are based on Monopoly but aren't called Monopoly. There's one called Inflation. There's one called Finance. So what does Parker Brothers and their chief executive, Robert Barton, do? They go out and they start buying out and buying up all the companies and all the old folk boards to cover their trail. Yeah. It's, like, it's like what they call an article in the National Enquirer that they buy and then don't intend to publish, a catch and kill. Yes. That's what they're doing. And it's a classic corporate maneuver. And they're trying to create a monopoly on the board game Monopoly. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. It's true. 
It's and it's true. part of the it's part of the mystery that Ralph begins to unpack, and it's uh it's really interesting. Well, the film again, it, you can watch it now, and it is as I said, you can go to your local PBS listing for whatever station you have in your area. But there's PBS.org is a good place to start, and then of course you have the PBS app. And also, I urge you to contribute to PBS as part of uh, to in order to keep the work alive like this one, like Stephen Ives' Ruthless Monopoly Secret History and other great platforms for filmmakers that PBS makes available. So there's just, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And and again, everybody knows Monopoly. Everybody in, everybody in the country knows they've seen it. They've, they've seen characters of it, they, whatever. You, you couldn't have missed it if you've grown up in this country. So, uh, and it's just a really rich history around this. So- one of the things we did is we got a group of kids to play the game uh, and then we sp sprinkled their game into the course of the documentary. And I did that because I wanted to remind everybody what it was like to play it as a kid. And yeah. it really does resonate. It's like, this is, that was me, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I'll, and I'll share this with you and the audience. And that is, I don't think I ever won at Monopoly. I was really bad at it. And again, bad, I don't know, based on luck, but bad luck or whatever. I was just really bad at Monopoly. It's, it's kind of a flawed game that way. It goes on forever. I think the number of times you can imagine finishing a game, you can count on one hand if you're lucky. And you're part right. of that is right. that nobody plays it by the real rules. You're not supposed to put money in the center and get a big payday when you land on free parking. You're supposed to auction off each property. If you don't buy it, when you land on it, it's supposed to get auctioned off to everybody else so that all the properties get purchased very quickly. If you play by the actual rules, the game takes about 90 minutes to two hours and it's over. Oh but my God. No one plays it that way. Uh, and no one's about to start playing it that way because you always play it the way you were taught. And oh, that's funny. There you go. There you go. Well, I was going to ask you, what did you learn about Monopoly that you didn't already know? But and you're right. It is attrition because I I, I say I've never won. But I again, I don't know if I've ever finished. I don't know <laughs> if I've ever, <clears throat> I've ever finished the game. And so, yeah. Wow. And it doesn't it doesn't always end well. Sometimes it ends in tears or recrimination or anger. So it's it's a game that lays bare a lot of our more uh, base emotions sometimes, but that's part of what makes it compelling and exciting to play. So. Yeah, I, I do recall a couple of flipped over boards over the course of the uh, playing Monopoly. Thank you so much for this. And uh, I look forward to, to more work. I hope you'll come back and join us again. The film again is called Ruthless Monopoly Secret History. And we've been joined by the director writer of the film, Stephen Ives. Stephen, thank you. Thank you, Mike. I really enjoyed talking to you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music